Uh, well, good morning, church. Um, hard to believe that next month it's been a full year since the Monk family has been here. And uh, I just want to thank you all uh, for the blessing that you've all been, especially for a year which has just been, uh, well, it feels like this is from a script from Shortness or something like that. Um, so, but from the bottom of my heart, uh, thank you for all the things you've done, um, the time and prayer you've given for me and my family, especially when my son was very sick. Um, we will never forget it. Um, and I've just been blown away by the maturity, um, spiritual maturity of this, this body here. Um, it has really made me want to stretch and grow by uh, being amongst you. So um, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now, uh, I want to talk to you about um, how, we can look, how we can live and look uh, in a hostile world still living for God, um, primarily from the book of Daniel. So what I want to do is I want to set the scene by reading chapter 1 from Daniel and then give some brief observances from some other chapters and then break that down to three points of how uh, we can take heart of that um, as if we feel we're starting to live in a hostile situation. So with all that, let's lean into Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Joachim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jericho, king of Judah, into his hand, with some articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel, and some of the king's descendants, and of some of the nobles, young men who was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace, whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And they appointed them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now among these were the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And to them the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself with the portions of the king's jealousies, nor with the wine which he drank, there he thought he requested of the chief of the eunuchs he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favour and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord my, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. Why should he see your face looking worse than a young man who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearances be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men to the portion of the king's allocies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in the matter and tested them ten days. At the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter than flesh than all the young men who ate the king's portions and delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portions of delicacies and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding of all visions and dreams. Now at the end of those days, when the king said they should be brought in, the chief of the Nurex brought them into Nebuchadnezzar, and the king interviewed them. And among them all, none were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding, at which the king examined them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in his realm. Thus Daniel continued the first year of King Cyrus. Israel has been conquered. Its people and its goods have been taken and plundered. And while some have been taken to be slaves, some have been taken to be given some favour and training to become in the ways of Babylon. But a group of teenage boys, despite the difficult circumstance, are resolved to live a godly life even without having their own country and temple to worship God properly. I believe an overview of the book of Daniel shows how living for God in a hostile world can look. In Daniel chapter 2, we see Daniel learn of a decree to kill all of him and his work associates 
after they are unable to, to get the interpretation of the Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So Daniel calls a prayer meeting and is able to get the interpretation. In chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down and worship the idol that Nebuchadnezzar erects. And by, by going to the fire, or refusing to worship this idol, Nebuchadnezzar sees a Christophany and sees Christ in the fire with them. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar gets a second dream, foretelling his own judgment. Daniel shows him sympathy to his own enslaver, offers him godly advice, and then Nebuchadnezzar repents during his judgment and then ends up exalting God. In chapter 5, Belshazzar desecrates the temple vessels. A writing appears on the walls which frightens him and everyone in the room. And they do not understand the meaning when a queen comes in and points to the memory of Daniel, that Daniel had a spirit around him. There was something different about him, and he was able to solve difficult circumstances and problems. And I think that's an archetype to how we should always be seen in this world. In chapter 6, Daniel ignores a government decree to, to only have prayers and offerings to Darius for 30 days, who was a new ruler of Babylon at that time, and continues to seek God in prayer three times every day, as he always had, despite the penalty of death by being fed to lions. I believe purpose in the heart is more than just rejecting sin. I believe it's a position and attitude of how we can live a life. There are three defining things I could try to summarize to show you how they can encourage us to, uh, to, to live for God in a hostile world. First, Daniel's friends stood for God's truth regardless of the circumstances. But what I think is really powerful is how Daniel stood for God's truth in dealing with a steward when rejecting the king's portions. I think the manner is summarized very nicely by Paul in Romans 12, 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful what to do is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And we're doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think the important thing to take away from this is to aim to live at peace with man without compromising our godly principles. And God's supernatural blessing of a healthy appearance, gifts of skills and wisdoms that Nebuchadnezzar himself said far as to the rest, show that I believe God helps with obedience and blesses those that purpose to obey. How I've seen standing for God's truth in my own life uh, is, I think, the story of my baptism. Back I had just gotten saved and I started attending a Christianity 101 course and uh, so I learned what baptism was, which, being a new Christian, I had no idea. So when I learned what baptism was and what it meant, I was deeply convicted that that was the right thing to do for me to go and get baptized. And after discussing with the pastor who took the course, he pointed out that with me and Tam living in an unmarried, living together sexual relationship, that by getting baptized, it would not be an obedient act. But I was more convicted that I need to do this and do this the right way. So I talked to Tam about my conviction, and she agreed, but she was hesitant and concerned that this might end our marriage before we even began. If we were to move apart, would we lose feelings for each other? Would we? But I believed that God was wanting us to do this, and he was going to bless us for it. So I began to seek God in prayer. And I prayed that God would convict her the same way I felt convicted. Then after some chance conversations with people who had gone through similar situations, Tam was convicted just as I was. It was the right thing to do. We had absolute confidence that we could move apart for that year or so was before our wedding and that God would bless our marriage for it, and he has. Second, what we purpose in will drive us. Daniel lived his life always seeking God. That was his purpose. 
In chapter 2, after hearing that he, he was about to be killed, as long as all his work associates, he doesn't try to run or hide. Instead, he calls a prayer meeting. He seeks God to give the answer that he knows God can give. And he does the same thing again in chapter 6. When learning of the decree for, that would have him killed, if he gets caught praying to his God, he still openly seeks his God, knowing that that is his true answer in that situation. But not only did Daniel pray for his own situation, he prayed for his temple, his people, his country, and he wanted Israel restored. He wants the whole nation to have God's blessing again, not just himself. And I think the end of his prayer in chapter 9 summarizes very nicely. Daniel chapter 9 from 15. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, who made yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger, your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayer and petition of your servants for your sake. Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel's length of the prayer in chapter 9, chapter 9 shows how he was driven to have the blessing for the entire nation of Israel, not just himself. And how I've seen what I purpose and has driven me in my life, um, it's a bit of an odd story, but the story how I was preparing for my third fight. Um, I've been training hard for a couple of years, and I competed twice. And I was unfortunately on the back of two losses. Well, one, I got robbed of a split decision, but <laughs> blind judges. Anyway, um, so I finally got, but I was competing at weight, a weight class, three, three classes above where I naturally sit. So I'd... Um, had a bit, a bit of a size sponge each time. When I finally got told I had a fight in my own weight class, I was stoked. But I'd spent months painstakingly packing on all this muscle to fight these bigger guys. And I had six weeks to lose this muscle. But I was determined that I was going to make weight and I was going to make it. So I was really training enough. I was training six days a week. I was running twice a day. I was doing more enough exercises. So what I had to target was my diet. What was my intake? So first, I got rid of most of my protein, no carbs, no starch. Um, any snack was only fruit. But uh, I wasn't cutting the weight fast enough. So, again, I resolved to find a way around this. And then I decided, uh, after figuring out, that fruit actually has a lot of sugar and water in it. So, well, there goes the fruit. And um, I also started to limit my water intake to no more than a litre and a half a day and got back to it. But I still wasn't losing the weight fast enough. So I thought, okay, well, I need to do this. I just have to make this work. What can I do? And then I, I learned if I make myself my body hotter, I can burn that muscle faster. So I started training in a rubbish bag and running in a weighted vest. <laughs> um, but still, I wasn't losing the weight fast enough. And then I was like, right, that's it. I'm wearing the brag 24-7. 24 hours a day for about three, day, three weeks, I think it was, I wore a rubbish bag when I slept. When I was at home, when I was at work. And I have to tell you, oh, when I worked at a place where I was the most hated person there, so that I, I was really mocked to walk around going shh, shh, shh all day. Um, not so good for the confidence, but I did it because I was doing it for a purpose. I was burning inside to make this happen, and I was going to do it regardless of what anyone was going to say about it. And then came the day to head down to Dunedin. 
got down there feeling a little bit hungry, a little bit dehydrated to make sure it was as light as possible for the scales. I got on and I made weight. But now my resolve had to change from getting there to actually putting everything I've been working on into practice. And as I was staring around the room, um, it was actually quite a big fight night because they'd, uh, I think they had some Sky TV coverage because there were some big titles on. So I was looking around the room and seeing all these cameras, fighters getting interviews from the media. I'm like, oh, I'm feeling pretty nervous now. And I even remember my opponent after um, our you know, standoff for the photo shoot saying he looks nervous. And I was like, right, that's it. I'm not going to let this nerves beat me. And when the day came the next day, I remember walking out into a sold-out crowd of about 1,100 people and just thinking, ooh, this is intense. And just the butterflies, and I just felt, I was shaking, I was so nervous. But as soon as I got into that cage, and I stood there in guard position and stared him down, I got focused. And I knew what I had to do, and I started thinking about how I was going to do it. And as soon as that bell rang, within 10 seconds, I kicked that dude straight off his feet. And then I did everything I've been practicing to do. The combinations I've been working on the whole time, a skip left body kick, and landed almost every time I threw it. And every time he came in and took me in the clinch, I beat him with superior technique and, and kneed him repeatedly. And I remember going to the corner for the second round, uh, between the first and second round, and my trainer going, good, that's what I want to see. Look for nu combo number six. And now I had to think and purpose about what he had just seen me do and analyze what I now needed to do to keep winning this fight. And I remember going out there just thinking, Combination six, combination six. And as soon as that bell rung, right low kick, left hook, drop the guy again. And continue the rest of that round, executing the combinations that my, my corner was calling me. But then came the third round. This guy had just lost two rounds, and he knew it, and he had to come back swinging. And he did. Now I had to resolve to stand my ground. I could not let him take back from me what I've just worked so hard to get. And I used everything I had in me to keep him at bay, and to keep working forward to the point where I was completely exhausted. I remember when that bell rung, I slumped back against the cage and I fell to the ground. I had nothing, nothing left to give. But I remember my fight trainer came up sitting on me like this and going, stand up, be proud. I remember crawling to my feet, struggling to get my breath back because I knew I had nothing else to give. But now came time for the judge's decision to make a call on what they had just seen. And I remember standing there hearing this, the term split decision and my heart sunk to the memory of that first fight where I feel I was robbed. And when I heard he, heard he had won, I was absolutely disgusted and was literally having to hold back saying some words. And I remember just walking back to my locker room and sitting down and just starting to take off my gloves, just didn't know what to say. And my fight trainer looked at me and said, what happened? I said, I don't know. I did everything I trained to do. I had him more, I heard him, I knocked him down at least twice. I don't know. And he looked at me and said, that was a win. Ignore that judge's call. That was a win. Sometimes we may not get... Oh, sorry, where am I? Sometimes we may not get the accolades or things that we feel we deserve, the appreciation or notoriety. But God sees our hearts, and that's what really counts. And the accolade that we need to be driven and living towards is that in the next life of, well done, good and faithful servant. And last of all, the actions of Daniel and the others always pointed to God. 
In Daniel chapter 2, when giving the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar, he makes sure to point out that it was God who gave, had given them that revelation. Daniel, in verse 27, Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. In chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown to the fire for not worshipping their idol, their actions, by, def- by defying him, allowed Nebuchadnezzar to see Christ in there with them. In chapter 6, when Daniel made sure to ignore the decree to only pray to Darius, still praying to his God as he always had, he made sure to exclaim to Darius that it was God who had saved him from the mouths of those lions. And we should never underestimate our conduct of how others can see Jesus through the way that we act. But what about the ultimate life that purpose in its heart to obey God? Jesus. Jesus purposed in his heart to die to himself every day, living 33 years so he could go to that cross, a spotless lamb for our sin. So he could offer us his righteousness to those who repent and believe. And by doing this, he has given those who believe and repent a life of purpose here and in the next. This church body, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, can equip you with all the encouragement, knowledge, and tools you need to live a life that God has for you. But you bring the heart. The one of flesh that God swapped out for the one of stone. But we have to purpose in it. I don't know what God is asking you in his spirit for you to purpose it out, but I know if you do, you can live a life of God's, of God's power regardless of circumstance. And if we mess up, there's a safety of grace to catch us. But a life purpose in the heart will get back up on that proverbial tightrope, purpose to live according to the will of our Heavenly Father. To thrive in a hostile world, I believe the church needs the spirit of Daniel, to resolve to live as best we can in a manner of, God, in a manner of Godliness despite our circumstances and shortfalls. To be at peace with man, but without compromising our godly principles. To praise God for what we have, to see him, perceive him moving stronger in the fire. To be seen as a source of wisdom, gentleness, and problem solving. To understand the scriptures and to be constant in prayer. And to be ready to have sympathy and godly wisdom for the lost. If we are in an important time in church history, as the world seems to be moving further into a spiritual moral decline, what a great opportunity we have to live purpose in a way where God can see his love and power. Thank you.